Hello and welcome to our last in a series of installments of take-home messages from the AUA 2017 annual meeting. Today's take-home messages will be BPH and LUTs, minimally invasive surgery, and quality improvements in patient safety. BPH and LUTs is presented to you by Dr. Doreen Chung. Hi, my name is Doreen Chung. Good afternoon. I'd like to thank Dr. Thrasher and Monger for the opportunity to present the take-home messages on BPH and LUTs. I have no disclosures. The overall themes included the following, confirmation of the long-term safety and efficacy of the newer modalities for surgical treatment of BPH, challenging the definition for the gold standard treatment, new combination medical therapies for BPH and LUTs, new insights into the relationship between metabolic syndrome, inflammation, and LUTs, as well as promising new technologies for the surgical treatment of BPH, including convective radiofrequency vapor thermal therapy and aqua ablation. This abstract looked at five-year follow-up from a prospective study on a very popular procedure, the button terp. Complications included a 12% urethral stricture rate and an 8% bladder neck contractor rate. Overall, the procedure does appear to be safe and effective. However, bladder neck contractures are not uncommon. This abstract looked at the long-term outcomes of the tulium vaponucleation procedure with five-year follow-up data. Stricture and bladder neck contractor rate was 3%, and 2% of patients required over five years retreatment for recurrent tissue. At five years, the median PSA reduction was still very good at 77.1%. Overall, durable improvements were seen in all parameters, and the tulium vaponucleation appears to be a very durable procedure. This interesting study compared tadalafil 5 milligrams daily with a complementary alternative medication uh, regimen with three different components. Overall, at six months, there were no differences seen between the groups in change in IPSS, Qmax, and post-void residual. However, there were fewer adverse effects seen with the complementary alternative medicine. This study looked at testosterone replacement with, uh, the, with the administration of Tadalafil daily in men with LUTs and overall slightly low testosterone. Patients were randomized either to Tadalafil alone or Tadalafil with transdermal testosterone. Overall improvements were seen in all groups in IPSS, Qmax, and post-void residual. However, greater improvements were seen in the testosterone combination therapy group in both quality of life and IPSS storage subscore. This was a Cochrane review and meta-analysis looking at the effects of desmopressin compared to other interventions for nocturia in men with LUTs. Ten studies were included, and overall, desmopressin was associated with a small decrease in nocturnal voids of approximately one per night, and similar reductions were seen compared to alpha blockers, although the quality of evidence was overall low. The impetus for this study from Vanderbilt is the fact that tamsulosin is currently undergoing evaluation for over-the-counter use in men with LUTs. Adult men not taking medication were shown a mock-up of drug packaging and asked if the medication would be appropriate for their use. Overall, 93% and 98% of men met appropriate self-selection criteria, and the decision to use tamsulosin appeared appropriate for most men, even with those with low health literacy. Overall, it seems feasible to use tamsulosin as an over-the-counter medication. This study from Japan compared the efficacy of combination therapy with an anticholinergic agent and an alpha blocker versus a beta agonist with an alpha blocker in patients with BPH and OAB. Patients filled out questionnaires and underwent urodynamics. 
At 12 weeks, uh, symptom scores in both groups are similar. However, on urodynamics, it, greater improvements were seen in physioteridine in terms of the incidence of detrusor overactivity. This interesting study from Mexico looked at the use of a visual analog scale compared to IPSS in patients with low literacy. Overall, 42% of patients needed help filling out the IPSS, whereas only 10% needed help filling out the visual analog score. Overall, it appears that a visual analog score may be a good option for patients with low literacy. This basic science poster looked at the effects of metformin in the inhibiting the proliferation of benign prostatic epithelial cells. Metformin does appear to inhibit proliferation of epithelial cells by suppressing the expression of IGF-1 receptor and may be protective against proliferation. This prize-winning poster looked at periprostatic fat secretome in BPH progression. Periprostatic fat is an adipose tissue containing adipose tissue macrophages. PPF was collected from prostatectomy patients and MRI was used pre-op to determine thickness. Overall, the sample showed expression of pro-inflammatory factors, suggesting a potential role in BPH pathogenesis of this fat. This late-breaking abstract by Dr. Rohrborn looked at the WATER study, which is a water jet robotic system, which appears to be very interesting and effective, as well as efficient, versus TRP in patients with moderate to severe BPH. 181 men were randomized to either aqua ablation or aqua beam to TRP. Overall, the aqua therapy appeared superior in the treatment of large prostates as well as in preventing anti-ejaculation events. It appears to be a very interesting, safe, and effective uh, procedure. This study by Dr. Rohrborn as well looked at the outcomes of radiofrequency thermal therapy or what is known as the resume therapy. The basis behind this is the fact that radiotherapy energy generates water vapor that disperses throughout the tissue to ablate tissue. It's, it's somewhat similar to previous um, transurethral uh, needle ablation procedures. Overall, crossover subjects had very uh, good improvements in IPSS, Qmax, and quality of life. Median lobe treatments can also be performed and were done in 31% of patients, and no new ED was uh, reported. Overall, this therapy appears to be a minimally invasive office or outpatient procedure that demonstrates improved less relief and improved Qmax up to two years, even in patients with a median lobe. This study looks at the five-year results of the Eurolift procedure, a prostatic urethral lift. In essence, this device is exactly what the name uh, states. There are two tines that compress the prostatic, prostatic urethra to open it up. This was five-year data from a large uh, RCT on patients with prostatic volume of 30 to 80 cc's. Patients experienced improvement by one month, and these improvements were durable to five years. One of the main selling points of this procedure is that sexual function was performed, including ejaculatory dysfunction. This study looked at the 13-year outcomes from the UK of HOLEP, or homeland laser nucleation of the prostate. Overall, uh, 969 cases were performed, and the procedure appeared to continue to be safe and effective with very few early or late complications. So it looks like HOLEP is here to stay. This group from USC looked at outcomes of robotic simple prostatectomy in patients with very large prostates with a median prostate volume of 137.5 milliliters. 129 men underwent transvesical robotic simple prostatectomy with a median follow-up of seven months. 
Overall, significant improvements were seen in IPSS, PVR, and QMAX. Few complications were seen. And overall, robotic simple prostatectomy appears safe and effective for the treatment of BPH with good functional outcomes and low morbidity. This group from France and from Quebec looked at an international experience of the 180-watt Greenlight XPS laser photovaporization in patients with prostates larger than 200 grams. Overall, uh, it appears to be an acceptable technique in this patient population. However, OR times, energy density, and PSA drop at two years, as well as LUTs, are a concern in this particular subgroup. Um, the authors recommend careful, careful counseling. The award-winning video looked at holmium laser nucleation of the prostate as a retreatment after failure of Urolift. This is sort of a contemporary view on the treatment of BPH. Overall, the video demonstrated that hole-up was feasible. And, however, auxiliary maneuvers were required for removal of nitinol tablets. I'd like to thank all the authors, and it was a shame that I could not include all the abstracts. Thank you for your attention. We'll continue with minimally invasive surgery as presented by Dr. Rosila Viterbo. Thank you for the opportunity in allowing me to present um, the take-home messages for minimally invasive surgery. I have no disclosures. I'm going to attempt to highlight some of this meeting's podium, poster, video, and plenary sessions on themes of maturing and emerging data on robotic procedures, continued emergence of new applications using the minimally invasive platform, association of surgeon skills and patient outcomes, interest in novel training concepts and education, and future technologies to help aid in the minimally invasive platform. In trying, uh, in due to time, I'm going to try and stick to the following outline. Starting with robotic prostatectomy, this abstract highlights the results of a prospective trial looking at open versus robotic prostatectomy across Sweden, it's across 14 centers, surgeons having done more than 100 cases each, trying to um, control for the learning curve. Multiple data points were obtained to highlight some of them. Patient reported erectile function, surgeon reported extent of nerve sparing, potency rates, biochemical recurrence at two years. For the PT2 group, margin rates better for open rather than robot. No difference in biochemical recurrence for this T2 disease group. In the T3-4 disease group, margin rates were worse for open as opposed to robotic. Worse biochemical recurrence for the T3-4 disease in the open group. They observed no difference in potency um, in the D'Amico high-risk patients. Low and intermediate-risk men had improved potency, recovery at all time points of robotic versus open surgery. Their take-home message in this quasi-randomized trial, outcomes favor the robotic approach. The cautionary tale here, it's limited short-term follow-up of two years. Continuing on to prostatectomy, this was presented by the Michigan Group, the Music Collaborative, to assess association between peer review of technical skill and short-term operative outcomes in robotic prostatectomy. Surgeons performing prostatectomy in this music collaborative submitted video clips of nerve-sparing prostatectomies. The edited clips of the vesicle urethral anastomosis from 29 surgeons underwent blind review. Each surgeon underwent review by at least nine peer surgeon reviewers. Surgeons were ranked on Global Robotic Skills Gear Score, which is an, uh, a evaluative assessment score using custom-designed web-based uh, registry. The surgeons were ranked on Global uh, uh, the surgeons were ranked uh, on the lowest 25th percentile 
of scale rating were compared to surgeons in the top 25th percentile quartile, and higher quartile surgeons had lower rates of estimated blood loss and less events of catheter replacements, which were a surrogate for outcomes. No differences in readmission rates or prolonged catheter duration outcomes were seen. Technical skills of surgeons performing the anastomosis during robotic prostatectomies varied widely. The take-home message here, better skills are associated with better results. Moving on to partial nephrectomy, this was presented by the San Diego group. They looked at, um, they created a data, uh, all-payer hospital clinical and economic database. They looked at over 50,000 patients who underwent robotic partial nephrectomy from 2003 to 2015. Surgeon and hospital partial nephrectomy volumes were calculated and divided into low, medium, and high-volume quartiles. The results show that higher-volume surgeons in hospitals had increased rates of older patients, where usually academic settings uh, with urban environments and greater than 500 beds. Higher-volume surgeons had fewer overall complications and major complications compared to lower-volume surgeons. The total cost to stay was not significantly different regardless of surgeon or hospital experience. Take-home message here, increased experience in partial nephrectomy by both surgeon and hospital was associated with lower complication rates and shorter length of, st uh, length of stay. But in-hospital cost was not significantly affected by provider experience. Continuing on to partial nephrectomy, I want to highlight this podium session and also video session. Um, this uh, was highlighted by one of the Italian groups that looked at 35 consecutive patients with renal tumor and IVC thrombus from 2011 to 2016 um, via two tertiary hospitals. The techniques highlighted perioperative and oncologic outcomes. The procedures performed were intracorporeal robotic-assisted radical nephrectomy with 5% of the patients having a level 1 thrombus, 65% uh, of the patients having a level 2 thrombus, and 28% of the patients having a level 3 thrombus. Take-home message, robotic IVC thrombectomy is challenging. In tertiary referral centers, this procedure is feasible, safe, and associated with favorable perioperative outcomes. Encouraging short-term oncologic outcomes were seen. Continuing on to radical cystectomy, this was presented earlier by Dr. Smith, the much-awaited RAZOR trial presented by Dr. Parikh. First, phase three, multi-center prospective randomized trial comparing open to robotic prostatectomy for a single-site organ, 350 patients with clinical stage T1 to T4 disease or CIS refractory bladder cancer were randomized one-to-one -one, uh, to open or robotic cystectomy across 15 U.S. institutions from 2011 and 2017. The RAZOR trial again compares open versus robotic cystectomy using oncologic, perioperative, functional, and quality of life endpoints. The trial designed as a non-inferiority comparison with robotic cystectomy being considered inferior if two-year progression-free survival was seen in greater than 50 percent uh, lower than the open radical cystectomy groups. They also collected other endpoints. The, the, the point made further concluded that robotic approach associated with shorter length of stay, lower estimated blood loss and transfusions rates than open cystectomy. Overall surgeon, surgical margins and lymph node yields were similar in both groups. However, as pointed out earlier, increased bladder soft tissue margins and increased operative times for robotic surgeons were seen. The real take-home message is randomized clinical trials can be done in the minimally invasive arena, as was highlighted in one of our plenary sessions. 
continuing on the adrenalectomy, um, a Boston group looked at a um, query, the American College of Surgeons NISQIP database. They looked at prolonged length of stay, prolonged operative time, and 30-day complications, and need for blood transfusions, reintubation, and reoperation. They looked at 291 patients who underwent adrenalectomy. These were done by urologists. 73 underwent open, 218 underwent laparoscopic elective adrenalectomy. The results show the lap approach was utilized more for patients with a higher BMI and was not associated with an ASA score. The overall complication rate was 6.2%, 9.6% for the open group, 4.6% for the laparoscopic group. Laparoscopic adrenalectomies were associated with a shorter and operative time, length of stay, and postoperative DVT and decreased need for blood transfusions. Take-home lapadrenalectomy, when possible, should be attempted as this is comparable outcomes. Continuing on, um, well, sorry. Continuing on to the RP uh, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, this was again highlighted earlier in our take-home messages. Um, this uh, calls to a video session, but also was uh, um, pre uh, presented at a plenary session by Dr. Porter's group. They present their technique on robotic retroperitoneal lymph node dissection using both the Da Vinci SI and XI robot. Full bilateral dissections with nurse bearings were performed for patients were diagnosed with non-seminomotous germ cell tumor that had completed three, four cycles of B and noted to have retroperitoneal masses and normal tumor markers. Mean operative times were 339 minutes. Mean estimated blood loss, 125 cc's. There were no transfusions and no open conversions. The robotic retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, the post-chemo setting, is feasible and offers patients the benefits of minimally invasive approach, but is technically challenging. Again, the take-home message here, we need to do more randomized clinical trials, and as Dr. Kavusi highlighted, less regionalization, more cooperation, and to be pro-responsible when doing these technically challenging procedures. Continuing on to training and education, this is also highlighted from the uh, Michigan group. They did a pilot study um, using it to assess the association between crowdsourced video rating review of surgeon skill and short-term outcomes following robotic prostatectomy, crowdsourcing being a process um, obtaining input into a task by using large groups of decentralized independent people, providing aggregated feedback, often online. The music participants included 260 urologists in Michigan who had done over 8,000 robotic prostatectomies. Online crowdsource reviews agreed with experts on rank order of surgeons with the lowest skill scores. Higher skilled surgeons had significantly lower complication rates. Take-home crowdsourcing could serve as a filter through which lower-performing surgeons are identified for peer review and coaching, and coaching and teaching initiatives can be used. Better skills may lead to improved, better patient care. And finally, to just highlight some of the future technology, this was from a City of Hope group looking at intraoperative imaging. This was first in vivo study looking at anti-PSMA antibody with a conjugated fluorescent marker with the specificity against a prostate-specific membrane antigen that may help guide and preservation of critical structures during real-time operative procedures, looking at nerve sparing or to help avoid positive margins or identify potential positive sites. Their objective was to investigate dosing and timing schedules and to correlate with intraoperative findings. 
Um, five patients were injected with IV fluorescent dye. Um, four days prior to prostatectomy, a 488 nanometer laser was attached to the robot camera. Five milligram doses for the first three patients failed to show uh, fluorescence. Escalated dose of 15 milligrams in the fourth patient showed ex vivo fluorescence, and fifth patient showed in vivo fluorescence of prostate tissue, although a false positive lymph node was seen that was pathologically negative. Again, this is the first in-human study, and I look forward to seeing what, the, what else they have to offer. Thank you for your time, and thank you to all the contributors. Safe travels. And we conclude with quality improvement and patient safety, as presented by Dr. Kristen Trouser. Thank you, Dr. Mangan and Thrasher, for the opportunity to talk about quality improvement and patient safety. And this is a new area for the AUA and um, in terms of focusing on, on really what quality improvement and patient safety are all about and how they impact your practice. You know, I think first I'd like to start off and talk a little about the definitions and relevance of, of QI and patient safety. Um, it's not something that a lot of us have thought about until recent years. Look at a few of the QI projects that have been presented at this conference, and um, as well as some collaboratives, which you've heard about already, and then looking at patient safety and quality improvement education. So quality surgical care, as we all know, should be safe, it should be effective, it should be patient-centered, it should be timely, efficient, and equitable. And un so under that umbrella of quality, we think about patient safety. And really, this is when we're, we're thinking about preventing harm. If this patient comes into contact with the health care system and is actually harmed rather than helped, then you know, we've done a double um, We've doubly failed. And so the prevention of harm is really important. First, we want to prevent errors. Um, we want to learn from those errors when they do happen because people are human and they will make errors. And then really develop a culture of safety that is not a culture of blame, but to look at the system and see how we can improve it. So then how does quality improvement fit inside that rubric? It really involves a formal analysis of performance and the systematic efforts to improve it. And, and there are a lot of different, you'll see a lot of different um, cycles, PDA cycles, and, and they're all different names. But, you know, this is one helpful one where you identify the problem, you make a plan to address that problem, you execute that plan, and then you review, and then you start over. So it's a very iterative process. So why should you care about quality, particularly in the United States, aside from the obvious moral arguments? This is a busy slide, and that's the point. There's a lot of alphabet soup out there. There's new laws that have created payment programs, um, and these are all about how you get paid. And the, MIP, the MIPS actually marries a lot of other programs that we've been dealing with in recent years, PQRS, meaningful use. And the whole point is essentially these Categories of clinical improvement now in, in, include things like quality and practice improvement activities. So this is going to be something that's really going to impact your bottom line. Um, aside from the fact that we should all be thinking about quality, there's a formalized structure um, in which we're going to be required to assess our activities and those of our practices. Um, and the MIPS score essentially will adjust your payment, whether that's up or down, and that's going to be released to the public. So back to the cycle, you know, traditional quality improvement projects are often small scale and they're addressing local problems. And like I mentioned, it's very iterative and ongoing. You don't just do a QI project and walk away from it. The whole point is to continue to improve. So 
what we found in, in looking at a lot of the abstracts and things here at the AUA this year is uh, we, we spent a lot of time on the identification step. And so I think as we go forward, we have to work on, you know, the planning and execution piece of it. But identifying the problem is important. And we saw a lot of really interesting abstracts looking at things like OR turnover times um, and what it impacts those opioid prescribing after vasectomies and what causes variability within that among providers. Surge in leadership and team performance, really interesting abstracts looking at the kind of behaviors that we exhibit in the OR, um, the kind of leadership we exhibit actually impacts whether people feel psychologically safe, and we know that impacts patient safety. Um, there's some work on geriatric functional outcomes after minor surgery observation in, in, uh, versus immediate discharge after uh, PERC placement. So these are all studies looking at this first step of identifying the problem. Um, and, and lots of these uh, young residents are looking then at next step projects and, and how they can make that better going forward. Um, but the Typical quality improvement project actually in, involves more than one step, so I'm just going to look at a couple that, that uh, sort of cover that complete piece. So um, group of Terry et al. from the University of Florida looked at safety and efficacy of post-operative extended duration venous embolism prophylaxis in a high-risk oncology patients. Um, and they gave people 28 days of anoxaparin post-operatively if they met uh, Caprini score um, standards, and then um, they accrued 150 patients in several oncologic categories, and they found that almost all of their patients just based on that scoring system qualified for um, VTE prophylaxis that was extended, and just based on the published data using that score, the expected rate is supposed to be greater than 5%, and when they implemented this, they found the observed rate was 0%. Um, and didn't uh, find any complications attributable to it, which is amazing. So they found that application of those guidelines in their population where they had, you know, some concerns about VTE was safe and effective. This Foley project looked at reducing Foley-related trauma, and for those of you who um, our first line on call, this might be of interest to you. They looked at a large community hospital QI project looking at inappropriate catheter use, catheter trauma, and patients who get uh, urologic procedures that might have been avoided. Um, the key here was to, to get their stakeholders involved, so they described a lot of meetings with nurses and things to, to sort out how the process worked and how it could be improved. They developed a skilled catheter nursing team and did some um, training for them, and then a difficult catheter, uh, urine, uh, sorry, a difficult urinary catheterization algorithm. And the results were the catheter trauma rates dropped as well as the need for subsequent procedures, and um, as well the, the number of urology consults dropped. So I think that's something that we would um, all be in favor of. So those are some examples of, of small projects in some places where, where they've been able to, to find a problem and, um, and, and implement something. And key, though, is scale. So we've seen that QI projects are scalable. And you've heard a lot about the Music Collaborative for Michigan at this meeting. They've had a lot of abstracts. And they've set up a... An organization where the, um, they, they accrue practices, they, accrue, they, they collect the data, and that's just step one. I think some of us think about these resources as just big data banks, but 
But these urologists actually attend meetings and they participate in QI initiatives, which then are integrated back into practice. And, and that's the real power of this, is not just um, an up-to-date granular database. It's a, it's a tool for QI, which is quite powerful. They've been able to um, give surgeons their perioperative outcome, kind of a report card, how they deviate from other people within the collaborative, um, as well as the functional and oncologic outcomes of their own patients. So here's a, um, an abstract presented in this meeting from the music collaborative um, take notes identifying drivers of 30-day readmission after radical prostatectomy. Um, notes is an objective tool tracking the deviations from expected recovery based on eight criteria, and they use those to identify what drives readmissions. A large number of radical prostatectomies were done, and they found that GI re events resulted in over half of the readmissions that were early on after surgery. And I think the key here is that you look down at the bottom, this is a high, it allows this granular look at a high impact area for a quality improvement right after radical prostatectomy. So surgical skill and patient outcomes after radical. Um, this is, was covered in the last uh, presentation, so I'm gonna skim through it really quickly. Um, video clips are used and um, there's a relationship between skill and outcome, not surprisingly, and the high quartile surgeons had lower practical outcomes in terms of catheter replacement rates and blood loss. And then the, the idea of um, this collaborative is that that, that data will then be used for peer-to-peer -peer coaching in order to improve the skills of other surgeons. Um, they leverage that to develop a metric called Octave that combines everything into one number that will essentially allow them to pick the best coaches. So I know that there's been a lot about Aqua. I think that, you know, if we think about music as a, a collaborative at state level and then Aqua as a safety collaborative um, at, at the national level that's been spearheaded by the AUA, you've heard a lot about it during this meeting. It allows you to parse data in a lot of different ways by a lot of different um, metrics and there's tremendous value in, in seeing how we practice across the entire country. So that brings me to quality improvement education. There were several papers looking at this, the AUA this year. It's part of the urology milestones and yet how it's operationalized isn't well understood. Um, so a survey was sent out to the program directors and um, everyone essentially agrees this is a good idea. And a lot of people think the AUA should actually provide that training. So the, um, Another quality improvement program looked at educating um, residents in terms of what should be involved in that curriculum. So they used a modified Delphi panel to figure out what topics really matter. And the, the things that popped out were things like waste identification, high value healthcare, and unwarranted variations. So what's the future? Um, there are increased educational offerings in terms of quality improvement, patient safety. Stay tuned for the AUA's patient safety video. It should be coming out soon. I think practical reports of these real-world QI projects that have scalable potential should be something that people should really consider submitting to the AUA next year. And I think the key and what comes out of this all is that, that we all provide better and safer surgery for our patients. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening for our presentation of take-home messages.
continue to look forward for other content from the AUA 2017 annual meeting and new content coming in the near future. Thank you.